0: You're listening to Rates and Lanes with Rico Mohammed. This is the show where we improve your knowledge of the freight market, improve your bottom line, and improve the transportation industry as a whole. We're talking rates and lanes. Let's move on down the audio road. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Rico Mohammed coming to you live from the Atlanta Farmers Market here in Forest Park, Georgia. Uh, right outside on the outskirts of Atlanta tonight, we have a hopefully another great show for you guys. And so, if you got any questions surrounding or pertaining to anything transportation law related, well, we got the man that can answer any and all of your questions. Hopefully, uh, Mr. Hank Seaton will be joining us. He's going to be uh, guest, our guest, special guest this week. So, if you have any questions pertaining to anything transportation law, contract uh detention, which is always a hot issue. or uh, anything with any type of uh anything related to the logistics and the legalities of transportation, Mr. Hank Seaton can probably tackle your question. So if you got a question for Hank, go ahead and press number one. That puts you in the queue. You can go ahead and get in line right now and get your question answered. You'll be one of the first ones that we get to get to get your questions answered. But in the meantime and in between time, we are going to start off the show as we normally do. We're going to check in on this USDA truck rate report for the week of September 16th, 2015. Um, And I've, I've got a link posted up on the Rakes and Lanes Facebook page for the truck rate report. So you can go to and just click on that if you want to get more details than what we cover here on the show. And just as, not a whole lot of movement there's only one particular market that is showing a little bit of movement that might be a a good place to have your trucks if you're doing anything as far as uh, fruits and vegetables or or produce related and that is southwest indiana and southeast illinois is the only area on the usda report that is showing a slight shortage of trucks that uh in that area they need some trucks in that area but they're showing a slight shortage in those areas uh so that's the only destination city that you might want to be the city that you might want to have on your radar if you're looking to refer reefer freight with produce or fruits and vegetables areas that you might want to avoid big lake in central minnesota is showing a slight surplus Texas is showing a slight surplus. Mexico crossing through Texas is showing a slight surplus. Those are areas that you might want to be a little bit wary of. All of the other destination cities in the report, like I said, there's a link up on the Facebook page for Rates and Lane that you can click on and go directly to this uh, report that I'm looking at right now. Every other uh, city on the on the report is showing an adequate supply of trucks which is uh, unfortunately has been kind of the theme for the entire year. Uh, really has not been a whole lot of movement, big swings one way or the other all year long. Um, so moving on from away from the uh, USDA report and moving into the DAT trend lines report for the week of September 6th through the 12th. Uh, Van and flatbed rates lost $0.01 per mile, and reefer rates held steady, despite an increase in national average load-to-truck ratios for all three equipment types. So let's dig in and look a little bit deeper into the numbers, and let's go and check out what the report is saying about U.S. van demand uh, on the DAT trend lines report. For load availability declined 15%, and truck capacity dropped 19% last week. Due to a shortened Labor Day week, the resulting load to truck ratio increased four point nine percent from just above one one point nine six up to two point zero five, or from two point one loads per truck. And after rounding it out, the van spot market rates declined one cents per mile. Capacity was down in August, van loads post dropped 4% in August compared to July, but capacity also declined 7%. The load-to-truck ratio rose by 3%, but after rounding that number held steady at 1.8 loads per truck compared to a typical conditions of 2014, the ratio has declined 45% over that course of time. Let's look into and see what the U.S. span rates were performing like for September 6th through the twelfth.
1: And despite
0: an increase, demand relative to capacity, national average rates declined one cents per mile for vans last week. Prices were on the rise in Chicago and the Pacific Northwest, but outbound rates fell in Memphis and in Houston. So let's see here, the average van rate in August was down six. Six cents lower than July due partially to a four cents drop in the average fuel surcharge. The monthly average of a dollar seventy-five cents per mile was twenty-five cents below the rate for August of 2014, also due to decline that shades 23 cents per mile off of the average surcharge. Checking in around the country, we're going to start out in the northeastern portion of the United States. Philadelphia being the representative city shows an average rate for drive vans coming out of Philly at $1.96 per mile. Atlanta, Georgia is the southeastern portion of the United States representative city, showing an average rate for drive vans at $1.77 per mile. Midwest representative city is Chicago, showing an average rate of $2.07 per mile coming out of Chicago. Moving down into the south central portion of the United States, Dallas is the representative city, showing an average rate of $1.69 per mile. And moving over and closing us out, showing the um, showing Los Angeles, California, an average rate per mile for drive-ins at two dollars and four cents per mile. Moving on to U.S. flatbed demand for the week of September sixth through the twelfth, flatbed load availability slipped eleven percent. Truck posts declined twenty-one percent last week, indicating higher demand for flatbeds during the week. Following the Labor Day, a 20% decline in low board activity would be typical for a four day week. The load to truck ratio increased 13 cents, 13% from 10.1 to 11.3 loads per truck. Average flatbed rates dipped 1 cents per mile on the spot market. And my computer just went on the fritz. Give me just a second, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to get this right back up. going to move right on over into the U.S. flatbed rates. The national average rates for flatbed declined one cent last week to two dollars and three cents per mile, despite an uptick in demand during the Labor Day holiday. Flatbed rates dropped seven cents during in August compared to July, with a three cent drop in the average fuel surcharge compared to 2014. The total rate fell 35 cents per mile, including a 24 cent decline in the fuel surcharge. Checking out the average rate from around the country, beginning as we always do in the northeastern portion of the United States, Harrisburg shows an average rate for flatbed portion of the United States showing an average rate for flatbeds at $2.43 per mile. Rock Island is showing an average rate for flatbeds at $2.15 per mile. South central portion of the United States, Houston, Texas, shows an average rate of $2.22 per mile for flatbeds. Rounding out the flatbed average rate report coming out of the West Coast, Phoenix, Arizona is the representative city showing an average rate of a dollar seventy-eight cents per mile. Moving on over into the U.S. reefer demand for the week of September sixth through the twelfth, reefer load post declined twelve percent, and truck load capacity said another fifteen percent due to a pause in load board activity on Labor Day. The load to truck ratio increased two point six percent from five point one to 5.2 loads per truck, the national average reefer rates were unchanged over the course of the week. The reefer loads were down 2% in August compared to July, while capacity declined 7%. The resulting load-to-truck ratio rose 5%, up to to 4.7 loads per truck from an average of 4.5. Compared to the typical results from August of 2014, the ratio has dropped 53% over the course of that time. Moving on over, and let's see how reefer rates were performing over the course of the week. Reefer line haul rates held steady last week at a national average of $2.04 per mile. Outbound rates rose in the Pacific Northwest, parts of California, as well as upper Midwest. While an off season surge in demand also boosted, we are also showing that the national average fuel price was held at $2.52 per gallon on the national average, down one cent. Reefer rates fell nine cents from the July average, which included a four cents drop in the average fuel surcharge. Year over year, the reefer spot market rates were down 25 cents in August, but 23 cents of that 25 cents is show is a actual decline from the fuel surcharge. But when you take that into consideration, not that bad. Um, it's just that there's just not a whole lot of freight moving on the spot market right now. And that pretty much wraps up the DAT trend lines report. Uh, also just as I spoke about the USDA truck rate report that's on the Facebook page, there's also a link that connects you direct trend lines report. For your convenience, you can go and click on that, and you can actually get the report that uh, we just rattled off to you. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, and no further ado, if you have any questions, go ahead and press number one. We're going to go ahead and get to our special guest, Mr. Hank Seaton, transportation attorney. Hank, are you there? Can you hear me? I am here. Good evening. Good evening, Hank. What's been going on New uh, going on, on the Hill? I, I noticed one story earlier that they. He has managed to push back the uh, EOBR mandate. Uh, anything else going on other other than that?
2: Uh, I don't know. I have a, a basic fear that uh, the Senate, in an effort to get the highway bill uh, passed, uh, may be compromising other things that are of particular interest to us. Uh, uh, they seem to be giving away the opportunity to deal with SMS uh, methodology. Uh, Ultimately, they had unfavorable language in what they tried to pass before they went on August uh, recess that they simply took out. There's a a notice in CCJ that they're uh, thinking about uh, putting in a provision that says, SMS methodology can be published, but it's not necessarily accurate. That really doesn't help anything. Uh, I think from our point of view, we just prefer to see them do nothing rather than uh, effectively deal with the issue. Over on the House side, there remains hope of uh, at least partial legislation. But at this point, it's anybody's guess. I'm really not sure of the major lobbying groups who is uh, pushing hard uh, for SMS uh, reform. With respect to the uh, safety fitness rule, it's been at OMB long enough to be released, uh, and out on the street, but, uh, most recent words I heard from, uh, CVSA's meeting was that, uh, the agency couldn't predict when we would have a proposed safety fitness rule on, uh, uh maybe changing the way carriers are determined to be, uh, safe. Those are the, the, the big, uh, uh, issues that, uh, that I'm following. If the, uh, agency's going to have to get real busy to get a number of rules uh, out uh this uh, this business year uh as we all know if they wait too late we'll be in the middle of an election then uh, the chances of anything uh getting finalized will be more remote. Uh there's not much news other than uh, uh Washington seems to be stalemated as usual. Okay,
0: okay. So anything in particular that um that we need to be so you're saying that right now it's probably going to be next year before we see any any kind of major movement or anything going on
2: i don't know there's a lot that is proposed to come out in the october and november time frame uh they would be noticing comment opportunities uh i'm alerting my client uh to uh The fact that once the safety fitness determination comes out, we'll have about 60 days to respond to it. I mentioned on the last podcast that there was a a URS proposal, which would change the way you make applications with the agency, which would uh, make the biannual update much more difficult, and which would require exempt and a large number of four-hire carriers to file evidence of insurance and agents. Uh, As we rather suspected, the most recent notice from the agency is that the drop dead date of October 23rd will be a soft landing and that there will be an extension with uh, more information released by the agency in mid-October. It's kind of hard to envision the agency being able to uh, release information in October and expect the industry to comply October twenty third. By the best calculations, there will be at least a hundred thousand new registrants that they'll have to log in with insurance and agents once that goes active. And uh, there will be uh, there's uh, an argument over whether uh, brokers who are also carriers will be assigned a separate DOT number. Uh, Ultimately, your MC number is supposed to go away. So yeah, that's that's a whole bunch of uh, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. When it's going to happen, uh, we'll probably be talking about next month.
0: Okay, um, let's see here. We got someone that has a question that got the hand raised. Let's go to Mark. Mark, has a question for us. Mark. You he here?
3: Hey, thank you so much for t- uh, putting me on tonight. Uh, first, I want to uh, thank Mr. Seaton for a piece of advice you gave me a number of months ago, uh, as far as. Uh, my status as a uh, leasing on with the, uh, one of the big mega carriers helped me, uh, help give me the confidence to uh, realize that it wasn't really my truck. It was just their truck I was borrowing for a while. Good <laughs> <It was mine. laughs> so, uh Yes, sir. So I've managed to uh, break free and find myself a much better arrangement. Um, my second question pertains to a more specialized area. I'm now running a step deck. I wanted to find out if there's any information out there that's uh, publicized as far
0: as uh, rates
3: uh, available.
0: Um, well, as far as rates of, or for as far as step decks, the uh, the reports that DAT puts out, they kind of lump step decks and they kind of lump step decks and flat in together. And I know that step decks, you know, if you have a little bit more of a specialty there and that you can you can load a couple of different things. Uh, but there's not a whole lot of resources as far as other than the, those ones that I just named off that I know of. Uh, I'm going to try to see if I can search out and find anything other than that. But right now, unfortunately, uh, DAT and Internet Truck Stop are about the only two that provide any uh, real tangible rate information when it comes to uh, those particular segments.
2: I guess my only comment would be I've never used it, but I gather that there is a special uh, uh, flatbed and drop deck uh, um, uh, internet truck stops called Central something, maybe Central Dispatch, that that may specialize in that kind of equipment. I don't know whether or not they publish any reports, but if you have access to it, you uh, might be able to glean what kind of premium is being paid for uh, drop deck equipment.
3: What was the name of that again? It,
2: it Central Dispatch, is that right, my,
0: uh, uh, Rico? I, I, I think it's. I think it's. Um, they have a special name, but it's all Internet Truck Stop offers it. Internet Truck Stop and DAT, like I say, those are the two major low boards, and those are the guys that that have access to that rate that that type of rate information. Um, another way that you, another way that you can, uh, that if if you've got some stuff and you're just trying to, uh, maybe trying to get an idea on some, on some lanes or whatever, if you have access to call other flatbed companies that are in the area, if you're trying to get specific rate information as far as lanes, one of the tricks that, that, that brokers, well, I'm not going to call it a trick, but one of the, one of the practices that brokers do is they, they will, um, what they, what they, what they actually call it, they term it as, um. they're going to poll, kind of like take a poll of the uh, community. So they'll call like different trucking companies. Uh, and I know you probably got in this call and, and ask you to give them a rate, you know, ask, and they'll ask you for a rate for a particular lane movement or whatever. And and they'll call four or five different trucking companies to get a rate and then, and then attach their commission on top of that. So that's, that's okay. another way that you can kind of get a, get an idea of some rates, you know, so you, you're in an area or something like that and you want to get a, specific rate on something like that to know if you're in the ballpark, if you're competitive, you know, you you can call your competitors of, of course, you know, you have to disguise yourself a little bit, but that's that's a little trick to kind of help get you some some accurate real time information.
3: That's a great idea. I I've subscribed to D A T and I'll look up some lanes that way. But looking if I can any anything I can look to do to get that competitive edge, I I'm
0: I'm all in i I'm all
3: yours. Thank you.
0: Definitely. and if and if anybody that's listening tonight, that's another thing that we we want to try and take advantage of. Is anybody else on the line tonight that, that knows of anything? Go ahead and press uh, number one, and, and maybe share some information that we may not have access to, so we can also point Mark in that direction. If there's someone else that that does flatbed, I mean, well, does, does step deck on a consistent basis that has access to some other information that they don't mind sharing. By all means, press number one, and, and we would love to get that information out. All right, thank Mark, you. well, we appreciate that, we, that you had any more questions, or that was it. That's it. I I, uh, I
3: appreciate that, Mr. Seaton, thank you again. It's uh, My life is much better. <laughs>
0: great, great. I'm glad <laughs> I was right. able to help. Appreciate it, Mark. All right, Hank, now, another thing that, you know, we've got a lot of people that's been coming in and, and into the industry and stuff like that, and a lot of people that are talking about, wanting to get their own authority. So I think might be a, a good time to maybe go back into some of the their dirty dozens that we were talking about while we wait to see if we get another question from uh, some of our callers that are on the line. Um, maybe talk about some of the different things that we that new people might need to be mindful of. And one of the big things that I think that uh, a lot of times may get overlooked and one of the simple things that could can, can be done, uh, can you talk about making sure that you are the carrier of record on the bill of late? Uh,
2: Yes, definitely. MAP-21 tried to address this by saying that the broker must make its role known to both the shipper and the carrier as a broker and not a carrier. Uh, That just firms up what has always been a fraud, and it's a fraud for a broker to be represented on a bill of lading as a carrier. In order for you, the small carrier, to get paid for your insurance company to cover the loss, And to avoid getting trapped in the double brokerage scheme, you should direct your driver when he signs the bill of lading to make very clear on the bill of lading. The company that he works for is the carrier of record. If there's some other carrier listed as the carrier of record, I think it goes so far as to say cross it out. And B, if it's some name you don't recognize, he should be instructed to call home because chances are you're aching for a break and the load has been double-brokered. This remains, notwithstanding MAP-21, one of the largest sources of non-payment for motor carriers. The bond is now $75,000, and hopefully on brokered loads you're checking out the guy you're doing business with and you're confirming in a load confirmation sheet that uh, he will pay you. So you've got recourse to the $75,000 bond. But that doesn't go very far when the broker walks away with half a million bucks. So uh getting your name on the bill of lading is not only best practice, it's
0: actually required by law. So and a little bit of a more maybe um another step or another level behind recourse, um, maybe you can maybe you can shed some light on this as well. What if you have a situation where um Say for instance, if you you want to try to circumvent the broker, or we're not necessarily circumvent them, but you you want to be able to go ahead and build directly the shipper, even though you use the broker, but the broker has faded out or whatever. Is is there a way if the seventy five thousand dollars bond doesn't hold up that you can go directly and bill the uh, actual shipper to uh, uh to, to get your money? Yeah, there
2: are two issues that are really involved. Uh, number one. In your contract with your broker, do not sign away your rights to take recourse to the shipper in the event of non-payment. If the broker contract says that you will look only to the broker and in no circumstances will you look to the consignor, you need to strike that out. The reason being is you can be bound by that contract if it's executed and if the shipper relies on it to his detriment, but... Moreover, if your name is on the bill of lading as the carrier of record, in most courts you have jurisdiction to the shipper. Now, I would not advocate anyone going to a shipper for payment of freight charges until it has been reasonably proven that the uh, underlying broker has not the financial obligation. So if it gets 30 days old, it's 30 day payment terms, you need to write. broker letter that says you're in default of the agreement unless you pay me within 10 days i'm going to report you to the uh uh ansonia and uh first advantage and i'm going to go to the shipper uh giving him fair warning but then you do have recourse to the shipper and uh if anyone has a problem with uh, how to express that or what what is the case law they can call uh Uh, Me or my firm, we we help people with those collection matters uh, because ultimately the broker is assumed as a matter of law to be the agent of the shipper and not your agent. And if anybody tells you that carriers don't pay twice in the right circumstances, don't believe them. The other thing that's important is from a broker's point of view, and you you chose a term that uh, probably need to address, uh, Rico, that is circumvent. Uh, I don't advocate as a business practice that you circumvent a broker um, unless he is proven to default on his uh, responsibility for receiving the shipper's payment, sending it to you. Most brokers in their contract will require you to say that you will not back solicit the customer for traffic first introduced to you. So, in other words, if you get a seam of freight, you uh, just can't go and say, well, this broker is getting 15% commission. I'll just go to Mr. Shipper and say, how would you like to save 10% and do business with me direct? That's probably a bad business ethics and a bad decision. Uh, Most of the larger people do take that language and say, we will not back solicit you with respect to traffic-first uh, handled by us for you so that, you know, if they give you General Electric freight uh from Hammond, Indiana to Chicago, it doesn't mean you can't haul a load for General Electric from some other location. And then also, some people put in there, nothing in this covenant not to back solicit will per- uh, preclude us from responding to uh, unsolicited requests for proposal at any time. And the reason for that is sometimes a carrier will decide that he doesn't want to do business any longer with this broker and will go out into the marketplace and send you unsolicited an opportunity to bid on the freight. And if he would do that, not because you've gone out and tried to back solicit, but, you know, if uh, three years later he wants to solicit your freight, uh, I think that should be fair game probably with reasonable notice to the broker. Hey, broker, you know, I've been asked to bid on this, that you lose the business uh, under our agreement. You know, I think I'm free free to bid it, what say you, so that the broker at least knows that his customer is circumvented, not you.
0: oh you there, Hank? Yep. Okay, i get like out there. Okay, okay. <laughs> it sounded like you just cut out all of a sudden. All right about that. Um but what we were um we were talking about dealing back going back into the dirty dozen as well. Um maybe you can talk a little bit as well about um if you have any claims, any cargo claims or if you sign away you talked about earlier about and I appreciate you correcting my language on that, but if, if you talked about earlier about signing away your rights when you when you people that are first getting into uh, a lot of people have been talking about getting their own authority, and, and a lot of people are, are just now getting started in the business and wanting to know how to get yes. in contact with brokers, so on and so forth. But, the, but they also have to be mindful of, when you're getting into this business, understanding these broker contracts and what you have the potential of a away in your rights as far as your cargo claims and stuff like that as well. Uh, maybe you can yes, touch yeah, on... Yeah, let me, uh, me mention,
2: and this is... Uh... Totally self-promoting. If there's anybody on the line that's thinking about getting into into the business, uh, in conjunction with a longtime friend, we're going to be offering a a compliance service to uh, new people to help them with these kinds of issues. Not only how to stay straight with the FMCSA and set up your driver qualification files and that, but also how to look out for the dirty dozen, and a long-awaited book will be out, and they'll get a copy of the book as well. So, if anyone is thinking about getting in their own in the in the business, uh, uh, take down uh, you know my email. Give me a call. We'll try to help with the birth process and see that you that you grow up big and strong. Uh, now, with respect to the question of cargo planes, Small carriers, particularly in the refrigerated market, uh, get regularly abused. And here's how it works. The, uh, the broker will sign a contract with the shipper that says, uh, we will uh, take care of any cargo claim you've got and we'll let you be judge and jury of whether or not the load can be salvaged. And then the broker, having accepted those kinds of responsibilities, will turn around in his contract with you, the carrier, and try to jam those responsibilities on you in two fashions. Number one, uh, he will take out of the contract any reference to general principles of federal transportation law and the relevant statute, which is called CARMAC. And he'll say that you are liable for any cargo loss or damage that as determined in the shipper's sole discretion and the shipper has no duty to mitigate now all of that is a uh, very lethal business and I give you an example. I'm working with a a client who is a is a referral from Alida uh, now I say he's a client because i uh uh I'm going to help the guy regardless of whether I get paid. I just simply feel sorry for him, but he transported a load that he didn't temp, and he maintained zero minus uh, 10 degrees Fahrenheit in transit until he got to delivery, and the shipment was delivered by the consignee, who asserts that uh, the load was hot. Well, if the load was hot, there's only one explanation, and that is that it was loaded hot by the consignor. So the consignee, the receiver rejects it and says what you do with it is up to you the the shipper won't take it back It rides around on his truck for six days and he contacts me in terms of what to do how do we get it off my truck how do i recoup six days worth of detention and the cost of dragging it 700 miles over there and 700 miles back we issued what's called an on-hand notice today and put the broker and everybody else on notice that we weren't going to pay the cargo claim because we didn't do anything wrong, and it was an actual omission of the shipper. But we had to get this stuff off our truck, and we were going to put it in a warehouse. And if they didn't provide for payment of the freight charges and accept responsibility for mitigating damages, we were going to sell it for best advantage. Now, all of that's going to cost this little carrier some money, but heaven only knows if he doesn't get the load off his truck very soon and get it inspected to see if it has any salvage value and doesn't build his case very effectively, that if it was delivered too hot to be received, it's because of an act or omission of the shipper. And we think you can prove that by the reefer. You know, if the stuff is loaded way over minus 10 degrees, a reefer in the 14 hours it took to get it to destination isn't going to chill it. It's just going to maintain the temperature, but the uh, uh King unit will downplay what was the ambient temperature in the truck, which we can then use to prove that if the load was hot, it ain't our fault. It must have been because it was loaded hot. So that's a little bit of an elaborate study, but if there's anybody on the line that does haul refrigerated commodities, I understand Rico is at the Atlanta farmer's market. Uh, if you're in the produce business, if it hadn't happened to you yet, it will. It's called reject it, crush it, and dump it. And unfortunately, it results from the fact that most retail grocery houses would a whole lot rather say we can't use it than they would have to sort through
0: it and find out what is on grade and what isn't. So this kind of goes into another situation. Um, If you happen to be in this situation and I know that a lot of people, and this is, you know, not saying that this is something that, well, I don't know. I don't know for particular. I I pull reefers. I don't know if it happens on how often it does happen, but if you have to, if you catch yourself in this situation, um, with your insurance company, how would you have uh, uh find the resources to be able to uh be able to sell a loan for if, if you have something like that happen to you um uh, um what kind of resources are out there are available would someone go to how would they avail themselves to to those type of resources if that if they find themselves in that situation well that's one of the
2: services that we hope to offer to uh uh New and Small Carriers, which is a a, a library of, of recommended salvagers. Uh, there are a couple of folks that I work with fairly regularly who are in the business of selling distressed markets. Uh, they're very good about inspecting the product and giving you a release from uh, you know, somebody getting sick or any liability that would happen. Uh, uh, by it being sold, which obviously is the big issue that concerns the shipper, which is, uh, hey, uh, you know, we don't think anybody's going to get sick, but we sure don't want uh, uh, distressed merchandise being out here on the market. And, uh, you know, I can can provide, without being a, a, a free plug for anybody in particular, a list of reputable people to salvage uh uh products intended for uh food consumption in that regard just coming out our new f d a requirements which will go into effect over the next six months that will somewhat drastically change paperwork and the and the procedures for handling uh perishable foodstuffs it's got some chain of custody requirements in it it's got uh uh a bunch of other things to be sure that temperature is maintained in transit but it does not really make it more difficult to reject the load because of a broken seal and those kinds of things so those of you who are uh, dealing in, in perishable commodities uh probably at some point are going to need to listen to a good seminar to know what your price duties and obligations are under
0: the uh perishable through that. And I know you talked a little earlier about um, and I, I'm, I'm sorry if I missed it, but did you talk about the date of the new book that you got coming out? Yeah.
2: it's that my editor and uh, hopefully he's going to get it done within the next month because uh, you know, I'm ser- certainly on my to-do list. I, I've, I've given him a lot, of, lot to do. It's going to be about 250 pages and Hopefully, he's going to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear because uh, uh, a, uh, it needs some polishing, but I'm sure he'll do a good job.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. So, one more thing about the, uh, the the dirty dozen. I think that really one the, the biggest takeaway I think that that I'm getting especially is to make sure that not only yourself, but if you have any drivers, is how critical it is to make sure that you get yourself on that bill of lading because you can run into a lot of issues when it comes to insurance and everything else. So if you don't have yourself on the bill of lading as the, rec- as the carrier of record and something, unfortunately, if something does happen while you're transporting that particular load, um, you could be left holding the bag. Your insurance company and everybody could just step away from you and, and everything would be just left sitting in your lap. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, that's true. Now, the other thing that you mentioned is the word insurance, and the, the word of wisdom for insurance is all cargo insurance isn't the same. Typically, the insurance, if it's bought only on price, you get what you pay for, and you need to watch. Some of the exclusions in policies that typically are not disclosed are exclusions for theft, Exclusion for wetness, dampness, and moisture. And an argument sometimes by a a real estate agent, well, all you can get is coverage for reefer breakdown. Well, reefer breakdown isn't the only source of a temperature loss. And theft is probably the largest uh, source of loss. So in terms of risk retention, you need to, first of all, Be sure that your obligation is limited to the amount of your insurance. If you get a contract that says you warrant, you'll have $100,000 in insurance coverage, you need to add to it, and that carrier's maximum liability for cargo loss or damage will be $100,000. In the past month, uh, I've agreed to represent a small drayman who uh, didn't understand that difference who signed the contract with the broker that he would have $100,000 worth of insurance is now facing a $294,000 claim. Well, uh, the additional $194,000, which results from a theft, which is really pretty easy to prove, uh, you know, the question is, what are you going to do to help him? Uh, you know, he didn't limit his liability. Uh, If Carmack applies, he's got unlimited liability and the value of the merchandise that was stolen uh, is almost three times the amount of his insurance. So, as you can see, here's another great big risk that can be assumed. You need to be sure that if you're going to handle anything that's got any kind of theft potential, that you got reasonable theft coverage in your policy, and you need to limit your liability to $100,000 unless otherwise agreed in writing. I think I mentioned on an earlier program that uh, one division of a major carrier got hit with a $5.2 million cargo claim because he didn't limit his liability. And uh, that's a bitter
0: bill to swallow but that's the way the law is worded right and that's that's one of the great things i I appreciate you so much for coming on spending some time with us and explaining this to the smaller people and a smaller guy that that don't have the big legal styles and and, and are not as sophisticated as some of the bigger carriers and stuff out there uh, so we can understand and realize exactly what type of potential problems could be out there um, of course, you know um, we try to rep- we try to really tout and and recommend practices here on the Rate the Lanes podcast, where we can try to avoid some of this stuff, and 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 avoiding some of this stuff is, is doing some of the things that you have talked to us about and recommended to us doing, such as uh, such as the room circular and the uh, service terms of condition uh, for our new people that may be listening in that may sound like we just talked a little bit of brief and, and, and a little bit of Chinese when saying rules circular and and terms of conditions. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well, as far as a new carrier, uh, um, making sure that they have those types of documents and how they can execute and use those documents when dealing with, uh, uh, going out here and, 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 and trying to establish themselves, dealing with brokers and dealing with, and dealing with, uh, yeah, direct I, you know, now, I, I will, I will put a little bit of a caveat in there. And right now, it, it, it tough as freight, it tough as right now it is as far as on the stock market is concerned, it may be a little difficult getting a new circuit or, or service terms or conditions into your contract when dealing with brokers. But you have to be willing to go through and try to negotiate and mitigate some of the exposures that the brokers will try to uh, uh, get through on their one-sided antiquated contracts that they have. Uh, With that said, I'll I'll turn the floor back over to you, Hank. Well,
2: yeah, you're you're definitely right that most brokers have been schooled in the idea that they don't do anything without a signed contract, and they dictate the terms and conditions. And a signed contract can waive a carrier's rule circulars, but the... uh, Law states and the uniform bill of lading states, the shipment is received subject to any signed written contract, otherwise subject to the carrier service terms and conditions, and tariffs a copy of which is on file. Now, there are a good number of instances in which loads are actually tendered, picked up, and transported without a signed contract, particularly in the intermodal industry uh there's kind of this common occurrence in which uh loads are just simply posted at a rate and you pick it up off of a load board and there's no reference to any terms and conditions bills of lading or anything else Uh, my clients who participate in that arena Uh, By and large publish their own service terms and conditions which can all of a sudden become very useful When a shipper fails to return a trailer on time, and they're done uh, by the uh, Chassis owner for up to a hundred dollars a day Why because their service terms and conditions say that the shipper will indemnify them for delay in returning the chassis Uh, the, the Intermodal carriers uh, very typically don't uh, negotiate any kind of limitation of liability, and rely instead upon if it's a if it's a rail move the rail tariff, or if it is an ocean move what's called COSCA, which limits the liability ordinarily to five hundred dollars uh, per package. The problem with both of those is. You may think it's a rail move, but if it's contracted separately from the rail portion, it's unlimited liability and you need a provision and a rules tariff again to get in this $100,000. If it's an ocean move, that $500 per package can be waived in an ocean bill you haven't seen, so you may have no limitation to hide behind. Or if, in fact, it is a whole bunch of little packages it can get very expensive uh i had a case for an intermodal carrier one time in which stolen off of his lot was fourteen hundred and fifty boxes of string bikinis now you wouldn't think that <laughs> would be a big load but by the time they got through with it it was almost a two hundred thousand dollar load because oh a very goodness. simple way it was packaged. Similarly, under COGDA, you can transport a machine that's worth a million dollars, and if it gets uh, uh, damaged in transit, the most the shipper gets is 500 So wow. it's obvious that you can't rely upon COGSCA to limit your liability, and the drayman who put into their tariffs that their maximum liability will be $100,000 per container or the limit of liability of any through bill, whichever is less, hit the best of both worlds. They can buy $100,000 worth of cargo insurance and know with some certainty that uh, they're not going to get caught in the middle of that $294,000 claim that this carrier I mentioned earlier, who's a drayman, has now got because he didn't have a tariff. Because he didn't have wow. his life. In his case,
0: well, we got a got a question for us.
2: We'd we at least, we'd at least be able to uh, pay an uninsured claim of a hundred thousand, and possibly stay in business. Three hundred is uh, just uh, more than a small man can bear. All
0: right, we're going to jump over. We got a caller that got a question for us. Uh, Paula has a question for us uh, right now. Hank, Paula, you're online live with Rico and Hank. How can we help?
1: Well, I have a question in regards to the carrier name on the bill of lading. Um, I've run across where the um, broker's name is on there. Is it sufficient enough for me to cross their name out and handwrite it in when I sign, or does it need to be changed in the shipper's computer to reflect our name?
2: It does not need to be changed in the shipper's computer. A lot of the pushback that you get from the shipper is that he's relying on that bill of lading and the broker's name uh and maybe the SCAT code to figure out who to pay. Uh, a, a properly executed broker load should say your name as the carrier with the third party bill to being the broker. Right. So you know if you're gonna get particular, you should have uh uh you know you should say uh uh, down there, usually there is a carrier block. And, you know, as long as you clearly, above the guy's signature, put carrier name Holt Transport by Jimmy Holt, then, you know, you preserved your recourse. It is a really bad, a really bad decision for a broker to let his name be put on a bill of lading. In fact, most broker-shipper contracts require that the carrier show them as a third party bill too anyway because you're actually doing a favor to the legitimate broker to get his name off of the bill of lading. Poor C. H. Robinson puts their names on so many bills they pay twenty two and twenty six million dollars for it. Because what happens when there's a bad accident as a result of liability stopping with the small carrier, plaintiff's bar says, hot damn, C. H. Robinson's a great big company they represented themselves as the carrier. Let's name them in the lawsuit. Gotcha. So it doesn't do a broker a bit of good to misrepresent himself as the carrier. And if you have to have, as a driver, if you have to have a discussion with the brake dock guy, you say, hey, look, man, you got chain of custody issues here. Uh, we're going to accept responsibility for the load we were hired by your broker, Our name and MC number is on the door. We want to be sure that this load is subject to our insurance if anything happens. And, you know, uh, we're told that there's a law that says that the carrier has to issue the bill of lading, not the broker. Now, is there a... You know, uh, that's a lot to tell a dock hand. That's a lot to tell a dock hand. But, you know, you can almost script it out and put it in the glove compartment and have him read it to him, you know? Yeah.
1: Now is that under Map Twenty Two and Four Twenty One, or yes, is there like 20... a um, is there like a number that I
2: could reference? You know, pointed out in the book and say, "Look here." Yeah, there is. Map Twenty One is the bill, but the change is in the definition of a carrier, and I think right offhand, it's in. Uh, uh, 49 USC 13101 something, but what happened is it says that a carrier may not broker a truckload shipment uh, unless it does so acting as a uh, as a broker or a freight forwarder. And in the implementation of the act, it says that the broker must clearly disclose uh, its relationship in any transaction. You can cite uh-huh. this. 49 CFR 371, there's a provision in that, I think it's 11, but just say 371 that says misrepresentation, and it says a broker shall not represent its operations as that of a carrier. Awesome. And you just very simply say, hey, look, uh, you know, I don't want to pick on C.H. Robinson, you know, say Coyote or whoever it is. Is a broker in this transaction, and you can call them. I don't really think they ne- they want their name as the carrier because it's a misrepresentation. It makes life worse for them. Okay, but just crossing it out,
1: handwriting it in is oh is enough.
2: Yeah, because it's a modification. Okay. Now, obviously, you know if you uh, if you don't have the old kind of thermo, uh thermal fax paper that prints through, you're going to have to do it. On the copy you leave with them and the copy you take home too. Okay. Because I'm assuming that if the shipper is the one paying the freight charges, that document may go upstream and you don't want to get into a situation after the fact where they say, well, you adulterated the bill because this is not on our original.
0: Okay. One of the thing one of the things that I that I've done, uh, Hank, and I don't know, you know, and maybe you can give us some give me some guidance or give us some advice on this, but one of the things that I've done is um I went just to Staples or somewhere and got me a little rubber stamp, you know, the 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 rubber stamp with my uh carrier name, M C number and all the M C and DOT numbers and everything printed on there and I and I and I'll stamp the bills with that little with that little stamp and I'll and I'll sign them. Um and I and I need to get one. I need to do that, and also for my for my driver that I got out there. But how did? What do you think about that process? Well,
2: Rico, I don't know whether you remember, but you must have read my book. Uh, there's a provision in the original <laughs> book called Cows, and the acronym stands for Conditions, Website, and Stamp. And the condition said to publish you uh, the service terms we're talking about website said, get you a simple website and put it up there and say you know Muhammad transport serving the US for service terms and conditions click here and then publish your service terms so that you can very easily refer to them to the shipper so he can find him. and then the last thing the stamp was referencing to the kind of stamp you just talked about now one of the things that I think was very important uh, for roadway uh, success was their drivers used to jump out of the truck with a little uh, adhesive stamp that they would put on each bill of lading that says something like service provided by roadway, roadway, 100 tariff applies. And the driver was instructed to use that uh, Adhesive stamp on each bill of lading to give fair notice to the shipper that uh, there was a whole lot more involved in hauling their freight than the bill of lading disclosed. And that same stamp, uh, I think, is important. Uh, one of the other reasons for the stamp is uh, when you go to send the invoice back up or uh, the bill of lading back up the uh, supply chain to get paid. Uh, some of my clients, uh, you know, the driver may have scrawled down there a uh, seat and transport by John Jones, and it's not really legible. They've got what I call a POD stamp, and they put on every POD before it goes back up the supply chain, a stamp that says, this proof of delivery is evidence of service provided by blank carrier, so that if the shipper, in due course, is ordering his freight bills he's not going to go off and pay some third party when he's got in front of his face clear notice that Muhammad transport provided the service and um, that's relevant to a lawsuit that i'm actually in today uh, a friend of mine took a this uh... deposition of a uh... A shipper who owes a, our client a hundred uh... two hundred sixty one thousand dollars and they were trying to tell me up that, uh, they didn't know that the loads were being double-brokered. So we asked them, uh, look, is this the invoice with the proof of delivery that you paid upon? And they said, yes. And we said, well, look at this underlying proof of delivery. doesn't it have our client's name as the carrier of record. How could you have had somebody auditing this bill and paying somebody else when the proof of delivery clearly showed that somebody else wasn't the service provider? And they didn't have any answer for that. And hopefully the fact they didn't have any answer for that will uh, demystify the argument that they're somehow blissfully ignorant of the fact that all of these shipments were double-brokered.
0: Wow. Wow. So, so ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, it's... A lot more to this game other than just going out here trying to find a truck and putting, you know, slapping your number and name on the door and running down the road. There there are a lot of sneaky little pitfalls that uh, can raise up and bite you. But if you are a listener of this program, hopefully we can do some things to help you navigate this minefield to keep you clear of a lot of the uh, little sneaky things that can uh, uh, be a little bit of a a pain in the backside and, and keep you up and running. Without all of the headache and, and uh, different things that, that that can come up and bite you, and uh, Hank, once again, the hour just has just really flown by. I want to give you the opportunity for you to go ahead and put out there again uh, how people can contact you um, and and different services and everything that you guys provide, and uh, so that everybody can know where to where to get you website information and all that stuff. Yeah, the
2: the best, probably the easiest thing to remember to jot down. It's just the name transportationlaw.net. dot net uh it's transportationlaw.net. dot net that's our law firm website that's got a list of uh of helpful uh webinars and uh, and written pieces it'll also tell you how to get in contact with me uh if anyone is uh, uh is looking for some uh continuing help with uh uh with compliance uh having a a source to kind of uh, be available to ask Hank or his colleagues when you get a stumper and you need a quick action, uh, send me a little note telling me that you're interested in this new uh, 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 compliance program we're rolling out, and I'll keep it and send it to you. I think that uh, the government's going to make compliance so hard that, uh, and there are enough of these pitfalls that you're not going to need it. None of you can afford a house counsel,
0: but everybody
2: needs to uh, uh, be able to get that quick question answered. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe this guy that I'm dealing with today, so that uh, the consignor and got an on-hand notice and told they had to get off the side and do something about it. We can get this little guy uh, uh, paid his thirty-one hundred dollars in freight charges and avoid a lawsuit. That's my goal. And you know, I think that uh having that kind of service available uh is, is probably helpful because uh I don't want to make everybody think the sky is falling, but if you you're blessed if you haven't run into it and you've been in business any period of time.
0: And 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 I just will say this too about Hank and 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 his colleagues up there at uh Seaton Hus Law Firm. They are really great uh even before I started doing this podcast and everything and contact Hank. I had a couple of little situations myself, Uh, called the uh, law firm and just got some really good uh, down to earth people to talk to me over the telephone and kind of guide me and lead me in in the proper direction. And I figured that would be something helpful when we started doing the podcast, if we could get that on an ongoing basis. So, you know, those guys up there are really helpful. Um, I had a little situation I talked about on the last time on our last podcast uh With my driver up in Maryland, and they they referred me to someone locally up there in the Baltimore area that we got on the case right now. And it looks like we may be able to get that get that thing resolved successfully without uh without it having a, a detriment on going on to our CSA scores and on and on our driving record for our driver and for our company. But um, but just wanted to give that quick little plug for you guys up there at uh Season Hub, uh law Well, firm, thank
2: you. One of the services uh, at, that. Uh... One of the services that we offer is everybody has to have, if you're a carrier, you have to designate an agent in each state. And there are a number of services that do it. And I was out looking at my competition the other day only to find out that a lot of them had dead men serving. Folks that I know uh, that uh, passed away five or ten years ago, they just haven't really updated their list. We keep our our list updated with motor carrier lawyers in each state so that you got a place to start. If you've got, uh, uh, you know, a truck impounded in New Jersey, you can call your agent. If he's not within uh, 25 miles and can't fix it, at least he knows the people in the Jersey bar who can help you. So it's kind of like a findings list. Uh, You know, I don't know. Uh, what the Ohio hut tax is? If you call me and ask about it, and you're an SPA mem- member, I'm going to tell you to call John Alden and ask him. And you know, as part of the uh, the agent network, uh, you know, uh, unless you got to start taking more than fifteen minutes of John's time, I'm sure he's going to give you the right answer and say you just say thank you very much. So, yes, I, mean, I-, I want to- Increasingly, increasingly, you may have one truck, but you're uh, going from coast to coast, and you're subject to fifteen or twenty different states. Uh, and any one of them can uh, uh, make your life miserable if you aren't able to uh, get some rep- representation and get quick answers to difficult questions.
0: Right, and, and once again, Hank, we want to thank you sincerely. Thank you for taking uh, out of your precious sure. time to come on and spend some time with us here on the Race and Lane podcast and explain and demystify some of these different uh, regulations and, and different things in these contracts that we need to be mindful of and that we need to watch for, watch out for and break it down to us in more of a layman's terms to where we can kind of wrap our minds around it and grasp the seriousness of what we're dealing with when we're, de- when we're getting into these co- different contracts and things. And a little bit of housekeeping before we get out of here. We want to uh, talk about the Audio Road uh, Network. Of course, the new recording schedule for Kevin Rutherford's show, if you want to catch his show, that airs on XM Radio. It airs every night at midnight. But if you want to actually get in and ask a question to Kevin Rutherford directly, uh, his recording schedule is Wednesday through Friday at 1 p.m. And the call-in number, save these call-in numbers, too, guys. Lock them into your phone. Uh, his call-in number for Kevin Rutherford's show is 347 884 Eight three two seven. That's three four seven eight eight four eight three two seven. That's every Wednesday through Friday. If you want to uh, catch his show and ask a question directly, that is the number. Those are the dates and times. And if you want to listen to Kevin Rutherford's show, of course, it's every night at midnight on the Road Dogs Trucking Network on XM Radio. That's channel one forty six. That airs every night at midnight and also on the weekends from. Uh, 3 until 7 p.m. is live call-in, 3 to 7 p.m. on XM, on Channel 146. And, of course, Kenny Long has his show, Trucking with Authority, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Call-in number for Kenny's show is four six 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 eight two two seven seven. Lock those numbers in. Lock those numbers in, and that way you can have them stored into your phone. Of course, the Racing Lane podcast with Rico Muhammad every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Our call-in number, hopefully you've got it already locked into your phone, 347-677-1799. That's 347-677-1799. Kim Cochran's show, Destination Health, comes on every Friday at 4 p.m. Kim's call-in number, 347-324-3285. That's 347-324-3285. And rounding out, the Audio Roads Net Podcasting Network, is Mike and Kevin Beckett. Their show, Rolling Toe, calls on every Sunday night at 9 p.m. And all of these times were Eastern Standard Time. I should have probably said that at the beginning. But uh, the calling number for Rolling Toe, Kevin, and Mike Beckett show is 347-637-1067. That's 347-637-1067. Ladies and gentlemen, we thank you again for your time and your attention. This has been the Rakes and Lanes Podcast with Rico Muhammad. Signing off live from the farmer's market here in Forest Park, Georgia, coming to you out of Atlanta, Georgia. This has been Rico and Hank Seaton. We appreciate it again. Thank you, everybody. Be safe out there. God bless you and good night. Good night, Hank. Appreciate the time again. Thanks for joining us on Rates and Lanes.